0: Right from the beginning, I'm going to, to tell you the main point of this passage. And the reason I like to do this is because uh, I'm not here to entertain. I'm not here uh, to produce some warm, fuzzy feeling in you. That's not why I'm here. I'm sure that's not why you're here either. But we're here to hear the word of the living God. And so this morning, I pray we do leave full. Not full uh, of, of ourselves or full of, of feeling a certain way, but full of the Spirit, as Paul says and writes to the Ephesians, and full of the Word of Christ as he writes to the Colossians. And so the main point of our passage today, for you to hear and for me to hear, is do not reject the truth. And you may hear that, as I did too, when you first read that, you're like, Okay, yep. I guess we can write this off and stop listening. Like, of course, this is, this is pretty obvious. Uh, but we need to keep in mind that everything, literally everything, is opposed against us except in the truth, except the Spirit of God. Everything. Our flesh is so opposed to the Word of God, it will use any means possible. Our emotions, our desires, our passions. The world is so opposed to us accepting the truth. It will use any means possible, influence, advertisement, government, education, shame, guilt, legal action. And then Satan is so opposed to us accepting the truth, and he will use any means possible, doubts, questioning, discouragement, false teaching. It's like we're working, swimming upriver. If we are not actively working to accept the truth, And going up river, and we just stop, it'll start pulling us away. We'll start going down. And I propose to you that one of the reasons that we are so tempted to reject the truth is because we're ashamed of it. We are ashamed of the truth and what it says, and so we simply ignore it and live as if it has not been said that way. And it's the culture that shames us. That we're foolish to believe that God spoke and the world became. Foolish to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, that he is exclusive. So the world calls us foolish, haters, bigots, homophobes, sexists, etc., etc., on and on it goes. And there's great temptation to be ashamed of the truth because the world is totally against us into shaming us. And I really believe this is a major obstacle for all of us, trying to avoid being shamed by the culture, and so we just kind of bypass. And this is no small deal. Jesus says this in Luke 9, and we're very close to coming to that, and as we work through Luke, Jesus says this, the Son of God says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And so we need to hear that. The living God, the Son of Man, literally says, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of you when I return. And So we come to our passage here in Luke 7, and that's the call we hear is, do not reject the truth. So if you have not opened your Bibles, please open up to Luke 7. And and as Bob kind of recounted there, this is coming right after John the Baptist expresses doubt and sends two messengers to Jesus. And Jesus points them to the word of God to resolve their doubts. And then if you remember at the end of that, I believe in verse 23, Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And from this, in the following passage that Bob read for us, is the main idea: do not reject the truth, and do not look for an excuse to reject the truth because you will find one. Do not look for an excuse to reject the truth because you will find one. So, verse 24: When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did he go up to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So John's messengers leave, right? And then Jesus, uh, presumably the crowd's still there listening to this exchange between Jesus and the messengers. He turns to the crowd and begins to speak of John the Baptist. And he uses a question to lead into this. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Obviously, he's referring to John the Baptist. That's what the topic is right at hand. And John was the one that was in the wilderness. And in this way, Jesus, as we see in this passage, from this question, he's able to do two things. One, he extols John the Baptist and the role that he has played. And two, he's able to address issues in the crowd and the people who are listening. He's able to address issues. And so he goes on, and he answers, he, he, he proposes an answer with another question. When he says, a reed shaken by the wind. And what we can't see in the English is that the grammar of that, it's, it's assumed no. It's assumed a negative answer. Like, no, you did not go out to see uh, a reed shaken by the wind. And that, that, that picture of a reed shaken by the wind may be familiar to you. If you recall James, James refers to one with doubts. Like one that's uh, tossed, like a wave tossed to and fro by the wind. You may recall that. Or uh, in Ephesians 4, when the Paul is writing about the purpose of the church, like the building of the church, he says this in Ephesians 4. You'll see the, the same kind of picture. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, so the purpose here... So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And so this picture is common. This reed shaken in the wind, the wave shaken by the wind, or the to and fro as Paul says here. So what is, what is Jesus saying here? Did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? Did you go out to see a man without a backbone? Did you go out to see a man who just simply follows the trend of our age? Did you go out to see a man who's accepted by all? Did you go out to see a man who's unstable and simply follows popular opinion? Is that who you went out to see? And the assumed answer is no. In his question, the assumed answer is no. That's not what you went out to to see. John the Baptist was no man-pleasing flatterer. That was not John the Baptist, not even close. So then Jesus proposes another answer with a question again assumed to be a no within the grammar. He says, well, did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Is that what you went out to the wilderness to see? Again, the answer is, is no. Clearly, we, we see, I believe in Matthew, John is described as having camel hair clothing, a leather belt, belt kind of rough. I'm not, I haven't been around many camels, but I assume their hair is kind of familiar to horses. Like their mane, it's very coarse. Can you imagine having that on your skin all the time? And so no, it was not soft clothing at all. But what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's using that physical picture, but with, all, with the implied analogy as well. The word therefore for soft in the New Testament is also used to refer to an effeminate man. We see this in 1 Corinthians when Paul uses this. A castrated man who simply bends over to any kind of opposition just like the reed that's, that's easily bent over by the wind. And so Jesus, he uses this picture, and he goes on with the, the, those with splendid clothing are like those in the king's courts, right? He says this. He uses that picture of both the physical reality and then the, the analogy. One, yeah, those who have good clothes, they're in the palace. But he also plays on the analogy that those who are soft, those that are simply without a backbone and just bend to whatever people want, they're in the king's palace because they'll just tell the king and the royal people what they want to hear and they're there. So he's using that picture. And so is this the man you went out to see, Jesus says to John the ba- to, to, about John the Baptist to the people? A man without a backbone, a reed shaken, one with a soft clothing or an effeminate man what the word is also used in 1 Corinthians. No, Jesus says, no, you went out to see a prophet. You went out to see a prophet who spoke the word of God, and that's exactly what John the Baptist was. Commissioned by God to proclaim the word of God, he was not commissioned to tell people what they want to hear. That was not his commission. And he spoke the truth boldly. He had a backbone. He preached against falsehood, which was very common in that day. He pronounced judgment on people. He called people venomous serpents and snakes. He called people to repent because judgment is coming. The ax is already at the root of the trees. He was not spineless and he was not uncertain, but he was a man of conviction, so much so that he called out the ruler of that area and said, your marriage is in opposition to the law of God. And because of that, he was, in, he was sent to prison and then soon after beheaded because of that. One commentator said, that John the Baptist was the furthest you can get from a nice person. He said, John the Baptist would be viewed today as an antisocial, abrasive, politically incorrect, and in general a bothersome, irritating nuisance. That's who John the Baptist was, and that's who he would be today for us. And please hear this. When Jesus says a prophet, the prophets were hated. They were hated by God's people. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Amos, Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, All martyred. They're all killed by God's people. All martyred. Jesus attests to this. He speaks to the Pharisees. Remember, this is the Pharisees who think uh, that they're special for lack of a better word. I'm trying to think of words here. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is from Matthew 23 hypocrites for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying if we had lived in the days of our fathers we would not have taken apart with them and shed the blood of the prophets so they're saying the Pharisees that they're like hey if we were there with the prophets we would not have killed them jesus continues thus You witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And so he's saying, you Pharisees, you act like you would have loved the prophets if they were here today. But he's saying, no, no, you would have killed them just the same, just as you're going to kill those I sent to you, referring to the apostles. And the apostles, just like the prophets, they were all killed, except for John, who was sent to an island to die there. Just like Christians throughout history who proclaimed the truth, were all hated. Tertullian, Ambrose, Athanasius, Augustine de Fippo, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Philip melton these guys did amazing things in church history. They defended the triune nature of God. They defended the deity of Christ. And largely because of some of these men today, we're not Roman Catholics, but we are Bible-believing Christians. But they were hated in their day. They were banished. Many of them chased from country to country. Athanasius, if I can focus on him for one second, Athanasius, he opposed the heresy of Arianism, and that may not seem much to you, but it's denying the deity of Christ—that Jesus was just uh, was a godlike creature, but he was not God—you can say that Arianism is the root of modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, the idea that they deny the deity of Christ. Well, Athanasius he defended the deity of Christ in a time where it seemed like the whole world was against him. Uh, Jerome, he said this at that time. He said, the whole world groaned and was amazed to find itself Arian, meaning that everyone was, uh, was against the deity of Christ at that time. But Athanasius, he stood there against the heretics of the church, against the Roman authority, Athanasius against the world, or as it's called, Athanasius, Quote Mundum, Athanasius against the world. It was that big of a deal, but yet he stood for the truth. So the prophets were hated, and people who speak the truth are hated. And I'm afraid that if they were alive today, we too would be in the crowd calling for their banishment, calling for their execution, because we'd be crying at their offensiveness and their unloving declaration of truth. So Jesus shows the crowd. as He's talking about John the Baptist, and he says, You did not go out to see an effeminate man who bends over for anyone who's offended, but they went out to a man who spoke the truth with boldness. It was his message that drew the people. And then from this, as you may be, Jesus hooks them, right? Like, how can they turn away now? He hooks them and proceeds with the passage and basically asks them, if you went out to the wilderness to hear the word of God from a prophet, why, why is it now that you reject the message he proclaimed? If you went out to hear the word of God, why are you rejecting it? You did not go out to see his clothing. You did not go out to see a man that just went with the whim of the age, popular opinion, but one who spoke the word of God. Why are you now acting upset that now that you hear it? So Jesus addresses their rejection as he extols John the Baptist. So he says, uh, where would you go to see you? A prophet? Yes. And more than that, because as we've seen so far, he was the front runner, the preparer for the Lord. And that's exactly what he uh, quotes in, in 27. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Quoting Malachi 3.1, we've seen this many times already, or at least I referenced it many times as we've gone through Luke that this one that Malachi prophesies about is John the Baptist, the one coming before Jesus the Messiah. So John was not like any prophet. He was a prophet, but he was more than that because he literally came right before the Messiah. He was able to point. As all the prophets were saying, there's one coming. He's coming. John the Baptist was able to say, here he is, and there he is. Here is the Lamb of God, as we read in John. So then with that in mind, Jesus adds, verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So what we see here is that Jesus and Luke, Luke does this a lot in his chapter, he splits history at the cross. It's before the cross and after the cross, kind of like we do, B.C.A.D. We practically do that. We literally do that. And that's what Jesus does. Those uh, born of woman is greater than John, uh, none. Born of the woman is greater than John. He's referring to those before uh, the cross. John comes right before Christ. Right before Christ decisively inaugurates his kingdom on the cross, raised from the dead, and then ascended. He comes right before that. If you remember, John is beheaded before Jesus is crucified. So John is right before that. He's greater than all, uh, all those born of women before. He's greater. But he is least of those in the kingdom of God. He's in it, but he's the least. And what is, what is Jesus saying here? On earth, John was not able to experience the full benefits of what Jesus offers. He was not able. He was, he was beheaded right before the crucifixion, uh, Jesus' resurrection, and his ascension, and then the Spirit at Pentecost's coming. Which means like John was not able to be indwelt by the Spirit permanently. We see that uh, the Spirit in the Old Testament comes and descends on on certain people through the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, when you are saved, the Holy Spirit indwells permanently in you. And then John also, John the Baptist, was not able to have a full understanding of the mysteries of the Gentile inclusion of the indwelling Christ, which we see in Ephesians, Paul says, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think that might be Colossians, actually. John wasn't able to have that full understanding. He was greatest among those before because he literally came right before he was beheaded right before Jesus crucified, but he 's the least in those afterwards because he didn't get experience everything they did here on earth. Peter kind of speaks of this first uh, Peter chapter one, Peter says this: concerning this salvation, the prophets. Who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours? He's speaking to uh, Christians, New Testament Christians. He says, They searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. So he's saying the prophets, they, they prophesied, inquiring, What is this going to look like? When is, the, when is the Messiah coming? Peter continues, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, Christians. In the things that you have now, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So Peter's saying, the prophets before Christ came, they spoke, they knew, they knew the gospel, that the Messiah was coming. He was making an end to sin. Matthew, uh, Matthew, uh, no, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 7, I believe, says that. He's going to make an end to sin. So they spoke, they knew that he was coming, he was coming. But they didn't fully understand what that's going to look like. But they spoke for us, as Peter says, because we see that. We now have the full understanding of Scripture showing this for us. So John, he's the greatest of those before the cross, but least in the kingdom because he was not able to fully experience all that we today are able to experience. And so with this statement, Jesus is able to both show the greatness of John and extol his role as well as show the greatness of this coming era of the fulfillment of the new covenant. And then we get a glimpse of the response. Verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So some accepted, and seemingly, as we see later, the majority rejected the truth. The people, and Luke, make sure to add in here, including the tax collectors even, declared God just when they heard this. Literally, it means they justified God. They counted him right. They recognized that God's call for repentance was right. And they expressed that as they they had John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. That's what it was all about. They, They recognized and they received the truth. In contrast, You've got the Pharisees and the lawyers who rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Or in other words, as it's translated, they rejected the counsel of God. They rejected the word of God, the truth of God. They rejected the need for repentance by rejecting John's baptism. In Mark 7, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Listen to this. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Then he gives an example. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you are no longer permitted to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making, from the example, what that does, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. And please, don't be mistaken. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for rejecting the word of God for what they thought was right, their tradition. And this is one, if not the biggest reason Jesus very uh, opposed and disliked the Pharisees is that they held to their tradition... uh, um, the, the oracle tradition of the, the elders, as it's referred to, as high as the word of God and therefore misled the people. This is the reason why Jesus disliked the Pharisees was because they held their tradition, what they thought was right, as high as God's word. And so we see the people came to hear the truth from the prophet in the wilderness, referring to John the Baptist. Some received the truth, some rejected it. And if that's not enough, now Jesus really heats some stuff up. He turns up the harshness and the offensiveness. And I love this. I love it. And it's probably obvious. I love it. And the reason why is because Jesus opposed the culture that said you need to be nice to people. You need to be nice to them. But he went against and proclaimed the truth. Which people desperately needed, but they did not want to hear. They desperately needed it, but he proclaimed it. And he was hated, he was offended by it, and eventually he was executed for it. So he says, verse 31, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? You know, something's good when he says this. He says, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not weep. So Jesus asks, what then shall compare this generation? And so clearly he indicts the Pharisees and the lawyers, which we just saw Luke describe that he, uh, they've rejected the truth. He clearly excludes the tax collectors and those who receive the truth. But notice he says this generation, he's communicating that a massive portion of the people listening have rejected the truth. This isn't a minority. This is the majority. He's referring to degeneration. And by extension, this includes anyone today, here, other, way, other places that reject the truth. And so he says, what can I compare him to? What does he pick? Immature children. Brats. Bratty kids is what he chooses to compare him to. In contrast... To today's emphasis on being politically correct, nice, loving as the world defines it, as we've talked about before, John and Jesus did not hesitate to confront and rebuke people with strong and offensive language. And so what's the picture here? He says, what can I compare you to? Kids who are in the marketplace, where it's typically where they play. There wasn't many playgrounds and stuff. They're like people, kids complaining that people did not follow what they wanted. They complained that we played the flutes, but no one danced like we wanted. We, We complained that they sang the dirge, but the people did not weep like they wanted. So what is Jesus getting at? He says, The people are like those rejecting the truth. These people are like children sitting in the marketplace complaining that the others did not follow what they wanted. The Jewish leadership is complaining that John and Jesus... Do not follow what they want. From their perspective, God's messengers are at fault, for they are not listening to the Jews what they want. And so please hear that again. The Jews here in this picture is faulting God's messengers for not listening to them. And this should make our ears bleed. Because people are complaining that God's measures, who have spoken the word of God, which is why people came to the wilderness in the first place, they're complaining, they're not saying what we want to hear. It should make our ears bleed, but it shouldn't surprise us. This is exactly what Paul tells Timothy in the leadership of the church. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And if you think our church is not prone to this, you're fooling yourself. We're all prone to this. We all are. If you read, uh, I've been reading in the prophet Jeremiah lately, and if you read in there, you will see how continually the people of God we Will get prophets that will say what they want to hear, but Jeremiah, who's continually saying, Hey, the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, he's coming, and they're going to destroy the place, and we should just go with them. We shouldn't, we shouldn't hang out here, we should just go with them. And they're like, then they're like, No, we don't want to hear that. That's, there's judgment coming, they don't want to hear that. So they go to these other prophets who are saying, Peace, peace is coming. That's what they want to hear but that is not the word of God. And they continually persecute Jeremiah who's speaking the word of God, which is not nice at all, but they don't want to hear that. And so they threw him down in a well and they're chasing after these false prophets who are saying, peace, peace. This is what you want to hear. This is what I'll give you. There's a saying that goes, tell lies to people who want lies and you'll get rich. Tell the truth to people who want the truth and you'll make a living. Tell the truth to people who want lies and you'll go broke. And American Christianity has become a marketplace that's all based on believers being the consumers and the standard is no longer truth but the standard is results, uh, money, attendance, popularity, acceptance. And what sells is not a sermon, book, conference, whatever that says to live a Christian as a Christian, it requires that you will not be in sync with a secular society in important ways, and you will be hated because of it. But what does sell indeed is a book or sermon that says you can live authentically as a Christian and be pretty much in line with secular society at the same time with no hassles, no opposition. We'll even give you a 30-day trial. If you don't want it, just send it back. And our natural tendency is to always go with that second option. As uh, writer Aaron Wren writes, if someone provides even a semi-plausible case for the second reason, we're often very likely to seize upon it because it means that we're not going to have confrontations. We're not going to offend people. We're not going to have any kind of opposition. So Jesus says, those who reject the truth are like children who only play if they can make the rules. It is their desire to dictate the truth the truth and not listen to God's messengers. And then Jesus ends by applying this message to John and himself. Verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John came. And he had a lot more restricted uh, lifestyle and, and ministry and his style was too radical for some people, and they were uncomfortable with it. But this, this style became a way for them to rationalize rejection of his message by claiming that he's unbalanced, that he has a demon. And so the motive for labeling John this way was just so that they don't have to wrestle with the truth. They attacked John's purpose, or I'm sorry, they attacked John's person in order to justify rejecting his message of truth and is that not what we see everywhere in our culture everywhere we watch a a political debate that's all it is is attack another person's character you don't ever get to any kind of reasonable argument with the policy or anything it's always this person's horrible that's very helpful thank you it says exactly what we see here is that people rejected john like hey this guy's nuts he's wearing camel hair Or this guy, he he doesn't even eat anything good. Therefore, we're able to reject. We have an excusable rejection of his message, his truth. And then Jesus comes. And he does the exact opposite. He comes to proclaim the truth, eating, drinking, so much that they can call him or uh, falsely accuse him of being a drunkard, uh, a a glutton. And so what they wanted from John, Jesus did, And they still found a reason to reject the truth. They still found it. As I said in the beginning, if you're looking for an excuse to reject the truth, you will find it every single time. So we've got men of God, John the Baptist, and literally the Son of Man, the Son of God, the greatest prophet, and God himself. They came in different ways, different styles, but yet they rejected the truth because they were never interested in the truth but they're only looking for excuses to reject the truth, to get around the lordship of Christ, to get around the truth that God's word is your authority. Charles Spurgeon, he said this. He said, There are multitudes of men who always quarrel with any kind of ministry that God may send them. This man's style is much too ornate. He is a superabundance of the flowers of oratory. That other man is much too dull. There's nothing interesting about his discourses. This man is too coarse. He is so rough as even to be vulgar. That other man is too refined and uses languages which, which shoots over people's heads. It is easy to find guilt and fault when you want to do so. Any stick will beat a dog. And any kind of excuse will do to allow your conscience to escape from the message of an earnest ministry. So if you're looking for an excuse to be offended, you'll find it. If you're looking for an excuse to reject truth, you'll find it in its messenger, which is exactly what we see here with Jesus and John. For some, regardless of the style of God's messenger, God's way will not do. And they'll point to the messenger as the justification for the rejection of truth. So with Jesus and John, we see that their form of ministry did not make a difference. As uh, one commentator, Daryl Bach says, they, being the Pharisees, they sang whichever tune they could to defend their rejection. They would always say that the messenger did not play by the rules. So do not be like this generation that Jesus says. You cannot excuse your rejection of truth by saying that you, that you were offended by the style of the messenger. You cannot explain to God that you rejected his truth because the messenger did not meet your expectations. And when Jesus comes back, you cannot explain away your living ashamed of the word of Christ by blaming it on the messengers. And then Jesus ends with this Verse 35 Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Kind of a last punch, but also some hope. We see, it. we see this contrast, right? The people who reject the truth, they are like bratty children in the marketplace. But those who receive the truth are like wisdom's children. So he sets that contrast up. Wisdom being the counsel and the truth of God's, uh, God's word. In the end, wisdom will be justified. The truth will be justified. Uh, uh, another quote by Spurgeon. He said, There shall come a day, There shall come a day when it shall be seen that after all, God knew best what style of preacher to send. He had work for each man to do and he adapted the man for the work he had entrusted to his charge. But there's also hope in this statement. Despite the rejection of the truth, the gospel will continue to save. The gospel will continue to edify. The preacher's style is not the determining factor. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. It is the word of God that the Spirit uses to sanctify people. John 17.17 17, and all over Scripture is what we read. We looked at that. Uh, Luke chapter 3, the power and the prayer of God's word. I listed tons of verses on this. But in the end, the word of God will be justified. The truth will be justified in the end, despite popular opinion, despite rejection of it. And so this morning Jesus is speaking to you and he's speaking to me. Do not look for an excuse to reject the truth because you will find one. There will always be a reason to be offended if you're looking for a reason. This is why Jesus began this whole thing. Verse 23, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So do not reject the truth because of the tone. Do not be the tone police. John spoke abrasively and boldly Jesus proclaimed judgment and called people very harsh words, very harsh names. Do not use your perception of of the tone to excuse your rejection of the truth spoken. Do not reject the truth because the messenger is not your preferred style. People, as we see here with John and Jesus, they pointed to the style of the messenger as an excuse to reject the truth that they spoke. Do not, uh, similarly, Do not reject the messenger, I'm sorry, do not reject the truth because the messenger is flawed. The messenger will always be flawed. Paul says, the treasure, the truth, is in jars of clay so that it is shown that the surpassing power belongs to God and not the messenger. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. So there's a purpose in the messenger being flawed is to show that it's not because of the messenger but because of God alone, his word alone, that these things are getting done. Do not reject the truth because it does not meet your expectations. Do not be like the children who will only play if people follow their rules. So what are my expectations, your expectations, but garbage if they're not informed by and in accord with God's word? They're nothing but trash if they're not according to God's word. Do not reject the truth because you think it is arrogant. And I was thinking about this this week. Do not reject the truth because you think it's arrogance. And I was thinking, and I read a little bit with this as well. In our culture today, arrogance has been equated to certainty, and humility has been equated to doubt. Let me kind of flesh this out. In our world, our world says if you have certainty about an issue, whether that be uh, who Jesus is, what you, what you think truth is, if you have any kind of certainty, you're, you're already marked as being arrogant. Because in our, in our culture, perpetual doubt is seen as humility. Oh, I don't really know. I, I don't know. Somehow that, that means you're humble. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, he said, um, I'm, this is coming off the cough. I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, we're supposed to be confident in the truth and be humble and doubt about our person, ourselves. Is what we see in Scripture. But he said, in our day, we've reversed it. We're certain about ourselves and we're so full of ourselves. But yet we doubt the truth. We've switched it. And that's exactly what we see. That's exactly what we see in our culture. Do not reject the truth by saying that the messenger is arrogant because he's certain. And if you recall, this goes against everything in Luke. Because Luke says right in the beginning that his purpose is so that Theophilus will have certainty in what he's teaching and what he's learned. It goes against everything that Luke is trying to get at. It goes. It's just another excuse to jump over the obstacle of absolute truth. Because one, one who whose label is humble and doubt, uh, therefore doubting, then they're not able to claim you ought to do this, or you you ought not to do this. Because it can only be responsible, Well, you can't really be certain, right? You can't really be sure. I guess either either one of us can do it. So do not reject truth because it's seen as arrogant. Do not reject truth because you think you know what is better for people. Let me say it again. Do not reject truth because you think you know what is better for people. And this may seem ridiculous. Like, okay, what does that even mean? It is recorded as I was going through Jeremiah. And in the word of God, as Jeremiah spoke the word of God, the false of, the prophets, the officials, they went to the king and they said this. Let this man be in Jeremiah. Let him be put to death. For he is weakening the hands of the soldiers. Because he's saying, the Chaldeans are coming. The Babylonians are coming. We we are going to get slaughtered. We need to just surrender, basically. We need to go into exile because that's God's judgment. That's what Jeremiah is saying. So these people are saying to to the king, he's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city. And the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man, speaking about Jeremiah, is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. Do you hear that? They thought that they knew what was better for people than what God said was better for the people. May we never be in that position. May we never. So do not reject truth because you think you know what is better for people. Do not look for an excuse because you will find one to reject the truth. Rather, we are called to submit to the truth, to overcome the offenses as we looked at last week. They'll come because our sinful nature naturally wants to push against the anything any kind of exposure of our sin or truth we want to push against it but overcome these offenses do not be offended by me jesus says blesses he who is offended or is not offended so do not be like those who cannot endure sound teaching but rather find people who will just tell them what they want to hear do not be like the israelites who did not listen to the truth that was really harsh and really tough. That was spoken by Jeremiah, but rather listen to false teachers who simply said what they want to hear. Peace, peace, peace. When actuality, within I think five years, they were just destroyed. Jerusalem was absolutely destroyed. Do not reject truth, for in truth there is forgiveness, there is mercy, there is grace, and there is genuine love. In truth, in the truth of God, there is only two options. Accept it or reject it. May we not be ashamed of God's word so that when Jesus returns, and he will, that he will not be ashamed of us when he comes. Pray with me. Father, Lord, um, God, you are God, we are not. You are the Lord of our lives, we are not. Lord, may we receive your truth. Give us grace, God, to overcome our, our, our old sin nature still there, pushing against the truth. Lord, may we, get, may we just uh, receive your truth. Lord, may you work in us. God, we are, we are beggars of grace. This morning we beg for your grace. Amen.